0: As I begin this morning, I do want to extend a warm greeting to each of you from the church in Flemington. We continue to pray for you and to continue we continue to experience the benefits of your prayers for us, and we delight in the fellowship that God has given us one with another. Thus far in our conference together through the course of yesterday's meetings, we have examined the profile of the single man And the single woman in the light of Genesis chapter 2. We've considered that state as a state which generally leads into the state of marriage. We saw that the single man is to be encouraged to establish himself in his vocation, to establish himself in his theology and his personal piety, and in the ability to lead so that he might rightfully take his place as ruler of a domestic government. We also saw that the single Christian woman is to rightly esteem and to embrace the roles of wife and mother, and that she is therefore to seek to cultivate the necessary virtues and the skills that are required for such an identity. Now, during this morning's Sunday school class, We're going to take advantage of the absence of our children and address ourselves to some more adult concerns. We're going to address ourselves this morning to the subject of sensuality and the single Christian. And as we do, let's bow together and ask that God might come and own again his word in our hearts and enable us to come to terms with what it means to live pure and holy lives for our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom and mercy it has pleased you to redeem us and save us from our sins. We can only imagine the course of our lives had you left us in our wickedness. And our God, as we Mount the vantage point of your word today and survey the landscape of wickedness and sensuality round about us. We pray that you might keep us safe. Let our feet not slip, but protect and guide, preserve us, we pray. Give to us an overwhelming love and desire to please Christ Jesus, that we might flee youthful lusts That we might desire to walk in a holy manner, pleasing to our Lord. Own your word in our hearts and our consciences. That it might be the very light to the path of our lives. That we would walk to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. Amen. First of all, this morning we're going to consider the enticement to sensuality. Secondly... The enticement to sexual sin. Thirdly, a word of warning to the wayward. And fourthly, a word of encouragement to the wounded. Let's consider then, first of all, the enticement to sensuality. Our society and its value system puts a premium on sensual pleasures. Our society operates under the direction of the God of this age and in particular targets the single adult and targets the single adult with a view to entice that person to a lifestyle of sensuality. If you look with me first of all this morning to Ezekiel 16, we'll see that our society very, very much resembles that of Sodom if there was ever a Sodom-like sensual society it certainly is the one in which we live we read of the description of Sodom in Ezekiel 16 verses 49 and 50 Behold this was the guilt of your sister Sodom She and her daughters had arrogance Abundant food And careless ease But she did not help the poor and needy Thus they were haughty And committed abominations before me Therefore I removed them when I saw it You see the description of this sensual society It is given to arrogance Prideful Man-centered in its world-life view and its value system. It sees itself as having no faults, without any humility, confident in man's ways, man's wisdom, man's means. We also see that it is abundant in food, affluent, festive in its excess of goods to the point of extravagance. It is wrapped as well in careless ease, a society which values convenience, comfort and pleasure. Obviously, in such an atmosphere, you would find a very dismal work ethic and a culture given to recreations. It is also a culture in its sensuality, which is without compassion, indifferent to the needs of the needy, without a heart of benevolence. And as such, can become very cruel and negligent of the weak and the infirm in its midst. It is also given to haughty abominations. And this is a description of its fundamental idolatry. And its accompanying sexual ritual that is often found with idolatry. So when we're speaking of sensuality, and we see it described in such a society... We're speaking of that lifestyle which is given to decadent self-indulgence. The word sensuality is a word that means to be licentious, to be debauched. Webster's Dictionary describes it as that freedom to deviate from general norms, to be licentious, to take license, to be excessive and undisciplined, an undisciplined freedom constituting an abuse of liberty. A disregard for rules and standards, indulging freedom to excess, unrestrained by law or morals, loose, wanton, lascivious, which is a tendency to excite sexual lust, lewdness, indecency, and shamelessness. It is profligate, in other words, wasteful, and reckless, extravagant, without principle, virtue, or decency. Certainly that describes the landscape of the culture in which we live. Now, the lonely single is particularly enticed in such a society to dull the pain of his loneliness with the anesthesia of sensuality. And in particular, he'll be tempted to be caught up in the party lifestyle. The party lifestyle. He no doubt works with peers whose main goal in life is to live from party to party. He is given to sensuality and carousing. Now imagine what it will be like on Tuesday when many of you return to your workplace and you say, hey, how was your weekend? And you say, then your friend says, well, we had a great weekend. It was unbelievable. We were able to snag a plane down to Acapulco and spent the day on the beach and went sun surfing and all of that and the food was unbelievable they made all kinds of things out of the jello and it was marvelous how about you what would you do for your weekend we went to the fellowship deaconry and we slept next to in the rooms that were paper thin walls with with older saints sleeping next to us and we had to keep our voices low past 10.30 at night and we sat and, and we were we were exposed to over five hours of expository preaching from the word of God I'm sure your workmates and fellow single peers will scratch your head and marvel because that doesn't sound like something very valuable to them because it's not sensual. It's not titillating to the carnal senses. And that's what the lifestyle is that many are given to. Now follow along with me in a number of texts that we're going to look at. First of all, beginning in Romans chapter 13. Beginning Romans 13, verse 13 and 14. And we see where it is that the Apostle Paul associates sensuality with this tendency to partying, this carousing lifestyle. In Romans 13 and verse 13, he says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Here describing the deeds of darkness in verse 12, the apostle identifies this partying lifestyle with its accompanying sexual impurity and its contentious discontentment. Again in Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. Galatians 5:19. Notice again the juxtaposition of sensuality and the partying lifestyle. Galatians 5.19 Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, the testimony of Peter in 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 2. The apostle writes, so live... As so to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you, but they shall give an account to him. Who is ready to judge the living and the dead? Sensuality, with its accompanying carousing and partying lifestyle. The lonely single acutely feels his loneliness and the need for social activity. And oftentimes, the pain of facing another lonely evening can be overwhelming. And so you begin to seek out company with those who are like you. And oftentimes, they're located at the local bar or at the nightclub. I believe it was the contemporary singer Billy Joel, in his song Piano Man, described them there at the bar drinking the cup of loneliness because it's better than drinking alone. But Peter says they're more than lonely. Peter tells us they're dangerous. In Second Peter chapter two, verse thirteen and fourteen, the apostle describes such who are given to a carousing, partying lifestyle. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart of greed, accursed children. They're dangerous, enticing, seductive, deceiving. And the temptation for the single professing Christian In getting caught up in this kind of activity, as a professing Christian, he will be tempted, could be tempted, to succumb to the intoxicating effects of sensuality and begin to develop a double lifestyle. He functions fine at work. He does okay at church. And he gets by unscathed when he has to deal with his parents and his family. But he always clothes himself In a robe of detachment. He always keeps a bit distant and disconnected. In order to mitigate against forming any wholesome friendships. Because there's an area of duplicity in his life that he cannot expose. There's a need to stay at a distance. He stays aloof therefore. Perpetuating his own pain of isolation. But that pain is just part of the admission price that he has to pay at the entrance to that dark tunnel, that hidden part of his life that he silently slips into as he walks incognito into the bar, into the pornography theater, into the back seat of the drug pusher's car. He gets a calloused conscience. As he sucks on the bottle of his sensuality. As he indulges his self-pity miserably, making it through another lonely night. As a professing Christian, perhaps, he finds himself in paradoxical tension. He knows his Bible verses. And he finds himself often engaged in Bible religious talk with his inebriated companions. And even attempts to soothe his conscience at the end of the night that in the midst of it all he's managed to witness. But he's a hearer, he's not a doer, and he's deceiving himself. He's thorny soil, and the seed of the word is being asphyxiated with the worries, riches, and pleasures of this life. And he's liable to apostatize because he's walking the path of Demas having loved this present world. The professing Christian is to be warned, therefore, against the enticement of sensuality. But secondly, this morning, the single Christian Christian is also to be warned against the enticement to sexual sin the enticement to sexual sin and the bible would teach us first of all that sensuality is very often the context in which sexual sin is found when you look with me to second corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21 in second corinthians 12:21 The apostle couches sexual sin in the context of sensuality. He tells the Corinthians, I am afraid that when I come again my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality and sensuality which they have practiced. Sexual sin found in a sensual lifestyle. And again, in that text we looked at previously, in Galatians 5 and verse 19, you see these two sins juxtaposed there as well, where the apostle mentions together in Galatians 5:19 that the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, immorality, porneia. It's the general term for sexual deviation from the God-sanctioned norm, ...of marriage. Porneia describes that which is unchaste, fornication, unlawful sexual intercourse, or prostitution. In other words, sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Premarital sexual activity, extramarital sexual activity. Morkea in the Greek is a term specifically related to the sins of adultery... But this term pornea, fornication, is a much more all embracing term, which includes all manner of sexual deviation adultery, homosexuality, sodomy, and auto eroticism. Now the devil will align his attack at the single Christian, at the point of his God given sexuality because he made them male. And female. And the devil will tempt the single Christian to express themselves sexually in ways other than heterosexual marriage. Paul is so bold in 1 Corinthians 6 9 to actually itemize a list of such sexual deviation. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Apostle asks the question, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 9, the apostle identifies heterosexual sin in its promiscuity, fornicators and adulterers, premarital sexual activity and extramarital sexual activity. And he also identifies homosexual sin in its perversion. And he uses the term effeminate, which is only used in this text in the Bible. It's a term which literally means soft. It's a term which is a technical term, if you will, to describe the feminine or passive partner in a homosexual encounter. And then the term homosexual is a term which describes the masculine or active partner in a homosexual encounter. Paul is so bold as to identify these sins and to itemize them before the minds of the Corinthian Christians. And he goes on then in this chapter to instruct them on the necessity of sexual purity as we read from verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body." Paul would have us know that fornication, immorality is a violation of the sexual norm that God established in creation. And therefore he quotes from Genesis 2.24. He would also have us know that fornication violates the sexual, spiritual sanctity of the child of God whose body is the very temple of the Spirit of God. Now when we turn further in the writings of the Apostle to the 7th chapter, as he continues to address this subject of human sexuality, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, 9, of the condition which renders one liable to succumbing to sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9, he says, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. The condition which renders one liable to sexual sin is described by the apostle as a burning. Now the word that he uses is literally a fire. To be consumed with flame. But it's evident that he's using it in a figurative manner. John Calvin says to burn is not a mere slight feeling but a boiling with lust so that you cannot resist and then Calvin goes on to ask this question where shall we find the man who does not experience some molestation of his flesh what an accurate description molestation of his flesh Now, brethren, what I am about to say needs to be said because there are many in our day, increasing numbers of Christian counselors who are taking a perspective on this matter that I believe is very dangerous. There are those who would argue that self-terminating sexual activity ought to be accepted as a viable means to quench this burning. But I say not so. I say not so. The apostle in Romans 1.27 describes homosexual addiction as they're burned in their desire one toward another. He uses the same word, burning, in their desire for one another, in their perversion. He lets us understand that homosexuality is a perversely intensified burning. It is a deviation which is akin to an addiction. And it makes no sense in my thinking to contribute to someone who's addicted, to help someone who's addicted by giving him more of the stuff that he's addicted to. And if burning makes one liable to sexual sin... It doesn't seem to me that deviant sexual behavior is going to be a means of grace. It's going to be a means of perpetuating the very thing that you're seeking to stop. You see, autoeroticism is a sexual addiction which terminates upon oneself. It is not, as some Christian counselors might suggest, a mere morally neutral activity. It is a deviant, misdirected sexual activity. And the man who is given to self-stimulation does not quench the burning, but rather intensifies that burning. And if he doesn't follow the command of the apostle and get married, he could very well become so addicted to that form of stimulation that he is but this far from continuing the same activity with another man. It's all cut out of the same cloth. I ask you, what do you think of a man who is given to the perversion of homosexual activity? Did he arrive at such a state having never indulged himself in autoeroticism? But notice what Paul says in verse 9. If they Do not have self-control. Let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. He's not describing something that's just addressed to men, is he? He also is addressing the unmarried and the widows, meaning the women too. It's commonly accepted that self-directed sexual activity is predominantly a male behavior. But I would suspect with the increased rise of lesbianism in our culture... I would venture to say that such deviant activity is probably more prevalent among women than what we would think. It's a burning. That consuming lust, that intense hunger, which propels a person to become overwhelmed with sexual desire. And even if it doesn't break out into actual sexual activity, it nonetheless makes it impossible to obey what the the apostle writes in verse 35. In his desire to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. We ought to be warned, my friends. The single Christian needs to be warned against the enticement to sexual sin. And with that, let me thirdly this morning issue then this word of warning to the wayward. A word of warning to the wayward. We cannot afford to be naive. And I can't help but believe that some of you even here this morning. Could very well be in the grip. The vice grip of sensuality. And sexual sin. You're here this morning. You're here this weekend. At the singles conference. But it could very well be that you're here with a bleeding conscience. Because of where you were last weekend. Sexual sin. And sensuality. You must understand is rooted in the mother sin of idolatry sensuality and sexual sin is rooted in the mother sin of idolatry the party lifestyle and its sensuality is depicted in the Bible as being motivated by blasphemy and hedonistic idolatry consider with me when it is that the Bible takes us into one of these parties in Daniel 5, to the banquet of Belshazzar. The indulgence in their sensuality works itself into an idolatrous frenzy. They can't be satisfied with all of what is already transpiring. Their, their revelry must culminate in a fist in the face of God. And so they go and take the utensils of the temple and continue their partying in their blasphemy. Their sin is insatisfied until it expresses itself in blasphemous contempt for God. Consider the banquet of Herod in Mark 6, where Herodias' daughter danced, and I don't believe she did the minuet. And he requests, rather she requests, the head of John the Baptist. Why? In a revolt against the word of God. To silence that word from the mouth of the prophet. The party in Daniel 5 is a revolt against the worship of God. The party in Mark 6 is a revolt against the word of God. It is motivated out of blasphemous idolatry and rebellion against God. The term that we've seen, carousal, is a Greek word, komoi. And that is a word which is taken from the festive revelry and drunken orgies which are involved in worshipping the Roman god Dionysus, or rather the Greek god Dionysus, and the Roman god Bacchus, who is the god of wine. And if you were in that culture, and were invited to a singles retreat under the name of the god of Bacchus, you wouldn't have stayed at the Fellowship Deaconry, I'll tell you that. You would have stayed in a, in a drunken orgy, in revelry, in carousing, in promiscuity, in indulgence in sensuality and sexual deviation. They were parties which were known for ecstatic dancing, drunkenness and sexual orgy. The party lifestyle and its sensuality is rooted in an idolatrous, blasphemous rebellion against God. So too, sexual deviation in the Bible is presented in close connection with the sin of idolatry. Paul continues to write to the Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, notice what he writes in verses 6 through 8. As he describes that generation of Israelites who fell in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Look at what the Spirit of God puts together in these verses. Craving that which is wrong, and then being idolaters which is demonstrated in a carousing, partying activity accompanied with sexual immorality. You see, it's all together. And it's fitting, therefore, that when we turn to Romans 1, and look at verse 24 to verse 27, the apostle feeds us here, if you will, with an idolatry sandwich between two slices of sexual perversion. Describes sexual promiscuity in verse 24. That's the first slice. The idolatry in verse 25. And then the second slice is the sexual perversion of verse 26. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Paul tells us that we are to realize the close connection between idolatry and sexual sin. And again, these things are brought to our minds and we turn to Colossians 3, verse 5 and 6. Where the Apostle counsels us. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it, for it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come immorality impurity amounts to idolatry it is of the same sin it is born of that mother sin idolatry I warn the wayward your involvement in this kind of activity is not inconsequential It is not looked upon by God as being somehow of a lesser sin or somehow not as bad as what you could be. God looks on it and sees the very root of it. And it's rooted in idolatry. It's rooted in a violation of the first and the second commandment. But secondly, a word of warning to the wayward. Not only ought to you understand that these sins are expressions of idolatry, But sensuality and sexual sin is sufficient reason to be cast into hell. Sensuality and and sexual sin is sufficient reason to be cast into hell. We have an example of a man in hell in Luke chapter 16. You're familiar with the account of Christ describing this man in Hades. Notice the lifestyle that preceded his entrance into hell. In Luke 16 and verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. He gave himself to a lifestyle of sensuality. That sensual indulgence. That love of careless ease, that love of comfort, that affluent indulgence of revelry was a lifestyle that preceded his entrance into hell. Sensuality is a sufficient reason to cast a man or a woman into hell. And sexual impurity in the Bible is a damnable offense to God. Hear the clear statements... Of the scriptures. Where we are told in Hebrews 13.4. That God will judge. Fornicators. And adulterers. God will judge. In Colossians 3.6. For it is on account of these things. That the wrath of God. Will come. 1 Corinthians six nine and 10. Two times inciting those sexual sins. The apostle says. That such who practice will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Galatians 5.21 those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In Revelation 22.15 outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters everyone who loves and practices lying. In our day Dear young people, dear single people, you're being encouraged to practice safe sex. The Bible prescribes safe sex. The sex that is safe from the wrath of God, it is the sex which is that of the marriage bed. Any other sexual activity is not safe. But let me also this morning give a word of comfort to the wounded. When you turn back to the Apostles' words of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you might ask yourself, well, do I burn? Am I burning? How do you know if your sex drive constitutes a burning? Well, the Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9, if they do not have self-control. That's how you know, if you don't have self-control. In other words, if in the light of the Word of God, there are occasions that are exposed in your life Where you have to say before God, I lost control. I lost control. Not only did it get hot, I got burned. And that's what he points to. And you may be here this morning, wounded with the blisters of having been burned. And I want to give you a word of comfort. Repentance will bring you comfort. Repentance will bring you comfort. Solomon in his wisdom. Tells us in Proverbs 28. and Verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them. Will find compassion. For confessing. And forsaking will bring comfort. Repentance will bring you comfort. There must be in your repentance a forsaking. A turning away. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it. And pass on Proverbs 4, 14 and 15. And again Solomon tells us regarding the seductress in Proverbs 7, 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her waves. Do not stray into her paths. Forsake, avoid, turn away. Stay clear of those occasions, of those people that incite that burning in you Job tells us in Job 31.1 I've made a covenant with my eyes how then could I gaze upon a virgin don't go to the convenience store where you're tempted to purchase pornography don't watch the video that's going to expose you to explicit lewdness and nudity don't embrace the adulteress Solomon tells his child about the embrace of an adulteress and says can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched have you put your arms around someone who is nothing but a burning coal to you and you know that there's no possibility of marriage There's no possibility of pursuing this relationship. It's not godly. And what this is, is just putting your arms around a hot coal. And you'll be burned. Repentance will bring you comfort. Secondly, running to Calvary will bring you comfort. Repentance and running to Calvary will bring you comfort. Isn't it encouraging, after that list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, that the apostle goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, describing that list of wicked living? In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's not uncommon for a person who has been polluted with sexual defilement to feel a profound sense of dirtiness. Well, isn't it wonderful that the apostle tells us you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. Run to Calvary. Run to To the blood of Christ. Which alone is sufficient. To cleanse you. From the deep deep stains. Of sexual sin. Only the blood of Christ. Is able to cleanse your conscience. From these dead works. So that you might turn. And serve the living God. To turn away from the idolatry. Involved in these sins. To turn and serve the living God. In faithful covenant communion. With him. Flee to Christ. Run to the cross. Realize that He is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He sympathizes with your weaknesses. If you've lost control. If you're burned and blistered. Come to Christ. Run to the cross. Flee immorality. Calvary. Calvary. Will bring you comfort. The comfort of cleansing. The comfort of sins forgiven. But thirdly. Not only repentance and running to Calvary. But resolving to live in holiness. Resolving to live in holiness will bring you comfort. Making the resolution. Making the determination. I have turned away. I have run to Christ. And I am now resolved. To live wholly unto God. This is the instruction of the apostle. In first Thessalonians chapter four. Where there we read in verse three. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, in this text, the vessel could be a term describing your wife, as in 1 Peter 3 7, where she is described as the weaker vessel, or it could be a term describing your body. As in 2 Corinthians 4.7 where we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Well, that shouldn't be a problem when we realize that a man in a married state is one flesh with his wife. So if it's a vessel who is his wife or his vessel who is body, it's the same one way or the other. But the point is to maintain yourself in sexual purity. To resolve that I am now going to live by the grace of God Not like a Gentile. Not like one who's outside of covenant grace to God. I'm going to live as a true Israelite, pure in heart. I'm going to live by the strength of the Spirit of God. And I'm going to make a determined resolution to continue repenting. To continue believing. And to prosper in holiness. I'm going to resolve to live holy in these matters. And you can measure your resolve, not by the intense moment of crisis, but you can measure your resolve by the diminishment of the frequency of the sin. Am I decreasing in the number of times that I fall in this area? Because the man of God is promised when he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, but the Lord is the one who upholds his hand. In verse 37, or rather, it's Psalm 37, verse 24. Is the frequency decreasing? You can measure resolve by determining if the intensity of the sin is decreasing. Am I sinning still, but with less abandon, with less extremity? And when I find myself falling and sense the upholding grace of God, do I determine to hate the very sin that's just tripped me so that the intensity is decreasing? As the Apostle Paul in Romans seven 15, I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. I hate it. And a hatred of it is an indication that your intense desire and intense association and attachment to it is decreasing. And is the duration of the sin decreasing? Do you find yourself unable to maintain the same length of involvement of time in the sin? Do you persist less? Does it take, as it were, less time for the Spirit of God to awaken your conscience to turn you to repent and to flee once again to Christ? Is Are you getting better times in the lapse that you're doing in repentance. When the fall comes is the duration of indulgence in the sin decreasing so that it takes a shorter and shorter period of time for you to find yourself again afresh at the foot of the cross. Like the prodigal son who finally came to his senses and came to his father and said, Father, I have sinned. How long does it take you to come to your senses? Is the time decreasing? The duration of the sin shortening? In that way, you can measure your resolve and your determination to live in holiness. And in making progress in that way, you ought to be comforted. But then fourthly, not only repentance running to Calvary and resolving to live in holiness. But fourthly. Realize. That marriage. Is the only. Sexual outlet. Approved. Of God. Realize that. Again in first. Thessalon- or rather first Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians chapter seven. And verse two. But because of immoralities. Let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. And in verse 9. But if they do not have self-control. Let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Because of immoralities. Let them have. And that is in the present imperative. It is a command. And again in verse 9, if there is not self control, let them marry. As in the aorist imperative, it's a command. In other words, if you honestly, in self assessment under the light of God, realize and conclude that you do not have the God given grace to maintain a celibate and continent lifestyle, then you must marry. You must. Or you'll render yourself liable to sexual sin. You'll render yourself liable to apostasy. You'll render yourself liable to the fires of hell. The apostle tells us, if there's immorality, if there's immorality, if there's burning, you've got one option. You must get married in order to work out holiness in your sexual identity. He doesn't give you the option of self-stimulation and self-indulgence. And he doesn't give you the option of asceticism, which is self-focused in its self abasement and Paul tells us is of no value against fleshly indulgence. He doesn't on the one hand offer you the option of self-centered indulgence or on the other hand offer offer you the option of self-centered denial. He says, if God has so constituted you in your sexual makeup to burn and maybe even in your life thus far to have been burned so that if there are immoralities because of immoralities He commands let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If there is not self-control then let them marry. Because it's better to marry Better to marry Than it is to burn One of the commentators says Paul does not teach that marriage is Just a prophylactic against fornication But it does serve that purpose It does serve that purpose Being kept from fornication Is a good thing The Bible tells us that marriage is the only sexual outlet approved by God. If you burn, then you better get married. May God add his blessing this morning to the study of his word. Let's bow together in prayer. Father we marvel at the penetrating light and accuracy of your word how we are so immediately exposed you know us very well and how we thank you our God that in your knowledge of us your heart of love and compassion is for us And that we in our sexual identities and we in this body of flesh need not run from you, but we are encouraged to turn to you and to have our lives mapped out and guided by your word and the teaching guidance of your spirit. Father, I pray this morning for these dear people gathered in your presence. Are there those burned today? Lord, comfort. Grant repentance. Draw them to your Son afresh. Help them to embrace biblical sexuality. Are there those given, O Father, to extravagant self-indulgence and sensual pleasure. O Lord, uproot this weed that would choke the fruit of your word. Grant grace. Issue by your spirit a stern and uncompromising warning for you are no respecter of persons. Own your word and make our hearts to be receptive soil that we might demonstrate an abundant harvest of holiness for the glory of Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.